Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to be. First 30 verses. Genesis chapter 29. Here's what the Word of God has to say. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and, the water, uh, and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, it is, well, is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be, to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well then we will water the sheep while he was still speaking with them Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel the daughter of Laban his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban his mother's brother Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the uh, uh, well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are, bone and, uh, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What is this? You have done to me. Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of, the, of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. 
Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Let's pray. When Dana and I were young married couple, and um, we would make mistakes, all kinds of things. So we'd buy the wrong thing and figure out that it was uh, something too cheap that we shouldn't spend our money on, or, or we'd make a financial decision that wasn't wise, or whatever it was. When we made a mistake early in our marriage, we would often use the phrase, well, you live and you learn. We understood then that Failures and missteps were also moments to learn and grow. And so, as we said, live and learn, what we were trying to encourage one another with is this was a moment of failure, this is a moment of, uh, of a mistake. We certainly don't want to do this again, but we were thankful for the, the lesson. We were thankful for the maturity that it was bringing to us to learn and, uh, and to mature. We didn't want to repeat the mistakes, but we also didn't want to forget the lessons that they, that they taught. There is a natural arrogance that comes along with youth. Sometimes it's cute. So if you have a toddler in your house, sometimes that little one will declare to you, I can do it all by myself. Now you know good and well they can't, but you also know they think they can. And so as they pursue whatever, whatever it is that they think they can do all by themselves, you'll also notice either the parents or if you're the parent, you're standing real close by to assist, to, to help just a little bit, to, to, to keep from disaster unfolding because of their determination to be by themselves. Sometimes it's cute when it's in toddlers. Other times it's, it's an expected annoyance. Spend some time around teenagers. They're still saying the same stuff. I'll do it all by myself. But they honestly believe that they can, and sometimes they do, and they're not even aware of the own, own, their own destruction that they're creating. But even with teenagers, there's sort of an expected annoyance. All of us, if we are in the room with a teenager declaring how much they know, we all kind of grin and smile knowing they don't really know that they don't know. But we're hoping and, and anticipating that by God's grace, the Lord will mature them and, uh, and, uh, and draw them to an understanding. However, if you were to reach an advanced age and you're still um, arrogant in your, uh, in, in your lack of knowledge, if you are still lacking of wisdom, even if you have advanced in great age, it's no longer cute, it's no longer an accepted annoyance. At that point, it becomes a sad, sad testimony that you missed out on the maturing, on the teaching, on the lessons that God had intended for you. Part of God's grace is to teach and mature us in moments of failure. That's why we find it so beautiful when we see someone who is advanced in age and advanced in wisdom. Part of that beauty is we recognize, man, they've seen some difficult moments. They've known some tremendous failures. They've known some great low moments, and yet, by God's grace, he's used those in their lives to produce wisdom and knowledge and understanding and righteousness. The arrogance of youth is tolerated only because of the hope in God's grace to mature. I think what we find in this passage is 
where we're reading the account of Jacob, who is really not a young man anymore. He's probably in his late 20s. He should be wiser than he is, and yet he is having to learn some lessons the hard way. The deceiver is going to be deceived. The one who has known pleasure and servants is going to have to be the one who serves. The one who stole the birthright from, his, from the firstborn son is going to realize that that firstborn honor, that the honoring of the firstborn must be recognized. All these things are going to be lessons that Jacob in his youth and his arrogance of youth has ignored, but God is going to teach him all the same. And so from this passage, I want us to see these three lessons. There's more, but I want us to see these three lessons. Number one, learning the value of humility. Oh, nobody wants to be humbled, but there is a gracious lesson in learning to be the value of humility. Number two, learning the cost of sin, not just to yourself, but learning that your sin has a cost to everyone around you. And then lastly, learning the fruit of deceitfulness, or really the fruit of all sin comes back to comes back to you. But we'll, we'll look at that later. But let's begin with learning the, the value of humility. And, and I want us to see the progression here that, that brokenness produces humility and that humility produces thanksgiving. So let's begin with brokenness produces humility. It's easy to imagine that why Jacob was an arrogant young man. So when you just consider how he grew up, he grew up as a boy of privilege. He grew up in the context of wealth. He, his mother probably told him every day of his life, you're the, the favored one. You're the one that God said was going to be served by your older brother. And so in that context, it's, it's easy for me to imagine how Jacob grew up as an arrogant, self-entitled, self-absorbed young man. Until he was forced to flee his home because of his brother Esau, uh, was threatening to kill him, Jacob had not uh, faced any real significant life difficulty. He'd probably never had to provide for himself. He'd probably never had to do much for himself. He'd probably never had to work really hard for that matter. And yet now all of these things are coming to bear in his life. As he arrives at his uncle's house, um, he will not enjoy what he had at his home, but he will rather experience a life of a servant. In verse 15, uh, it, when you read this verse, at first glance, it seems rather kind-hearted of Laban, his uncle. So look in your, your passages and see what it says in verse 15. So Jacob had been there at, at Laban's house a month. And Laban, his uncle, said to him, because you're my kinsman, you're my kinfolk is what he's saying. You're my nephew. Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, at first glance, that seems rather appropriate, rather kind, rather maybe even gracious of Laban. Nephew Jacob, you're my kinsman. You shouldn't be working for me for nothing. Let's figure out what you should be paid. But when you understand what Laban's actually saying, it, uh, it, it gives you an appreciation for the new reality of Jacob's life. So the, the verse before this, verse 14, uh, it tells us that Jacob had lived with Laban for a month. Now, just in your, own, in your own family dynamic, imagine if a family member comes to visit you. A month's a little long to stay, but let's just say they come to visit for a couple of days. 
your nephew, your niece, uh, a cousin, somebody that you that is related to you, they come and they visit you. When they visit you, they enjoy the privileges of being a family member. They enjoy the comforts of the family's wealth. So you probably put them up in the guest room and you probably provide for them meals. So when your family eats, they sit at the table with your family and eat your food. And and all the things that you provide for your family, your guest gets to enjoy because you've welcomed them into your home as an extended family member. So they become really part of the family. And, and for a month, Jacob had been probably eating at Laban's table. He had probably been eating Laban's food. He'd probably been staying in the guest room. He had been enjoying the hospitality that is extended not just to a stranger, but to a, to a family member. But in verse 15, Laban is making clear that from this point on, Jacob can't keep, continue to live in the house as a family member. He's got to stay there as something else. In fact, he's not going to be at the level of family. He's going to be at the level of a servant. Listen to what Laban says. He says, listen, I'm going to be good to you. You shouldn't be working for me for nothing. Let me pay you a wage. Because Laban is saying, your relationship's changing, dear Jacob. You're not going to hang out in my house and eat at my table and participate in my family life. No, you can stay, but you're going to stay as a hired hand. Family members don't receive a wage, but servants work for uh, for their wages. Jacob had not yet been required in his whole life to work. But he would now be required to serve Laban as a hired hand. We see a glimpse of Jacob's humbling in how he responds to working so that he could marry Rachel. As a young man, he approached life assuming that everything should be given to him when he wanted it and how he wanted it. He wanted, he wanted the, the birthright, and so he tricked his older brother Esau to get it. And even, the, even though the blessing had been promised to him by God, he wanted it when he wanted it. And so he lied to his, his father. He stole it from his brother. He, he guided, got it on his own, in his own uh, timetable. But I do think in this passage we see a glimpse of J- uh, Jacob's humbling in that um, When he began to work for Rachel's hand, the Bible says that it felt to him like only a few days. That's verse 20. Now, this is, by the way, the first testimony in Scripture of a true love story. There were other marriages in Scripture, but this is the first time we see in Scripture a husband and wife who genuinely had affection for one another and and loved one another. Not saying that that the, the previous marriages weren't, but this is the first testimony of it in Scripture. But I do think as we, we read about Jacob working for, uh, for Rachel's hand, um, I, I, and it's saying to us that it was like a few days, I think it's just a recognition of his understanding of his new status. He is no longer the, the, the son of the patriarch. He's no longer living in the house as the one who everybody defers to. No, he's willing to take up his new role as a servant to earn the hand of his beloved. There's a truth here that God allows us to experience brokenness, not for our shame or destruction, but to break the destructive grip of pride that we might be graciously humbled. Friends, if you are consumed with pride today, if you're consumed with a sense of entitlement today, 
If you believe that you should get what you want, when you want it, and how you want it today, that type of pride will sow great consequences of destruction in your life. And when God breaks us from that, it is painful. Oh, don't you understand? It had to be difficult to go from the son of the patriarch down to a servant in Laban's house, and yet there's grace in that. That, that God is not trying to destroy or to shame Jacob, but he's breaking that grip of pride in his life that he might learn the value of humility. Brokenness produces humility in our life. And when we have humility in our life, it produces thanksgiving. In pride, we assume we deserve what we have. In fact, in pride, we assume we deserve better. In arrogance, we believe that our desires and wants should always be met. And by the way, that is the, that is the message that we receive from this consumer-driven world all the time. The, 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 the basic line of every commercial is, you need this product, you deserve this product, do whatever you've got to do to purchase this product. But in humility, we recognize God's grace and have appreciation for it and thanksgiving for it. Jacob had traveled nearly 500 miles. And understand, now you and I may not think much about going 500 miles, but he had walked 500 miles without GPS, without a map, without marked roads, probably was following trade routes. But essentially, when he left for Laban's house, he just had a general direction. Go that way until you find your, your uncle Laban and his household some 500 miles away. When he finally gets to Haran and is introduced to Rachel, the Bible says that he weeps. And the, the sense there is that he weeps out loud. Like, not like you know, hiding his, his crying, but he's just un, overwhelmed with emotion and begins to cry. He's unable to control or hide his tears. And I think what's happening here is he's overcome with a lot of emotion. Now, the, there's certainly something to be said for he was smitten with Rachel. The Bible says that clearly, and it's a, uh, it clearly that, it's, that, he, that he loved Rachel from, from really first sight. And that's a beautiful testimony. But, but what I think is, is truly overwhelms his heart is that he is thankful, deeply, deeply thankful that he's finally arrived. Arriving at Laban's house and finding Laban well was never a guaranteed outcome for Jacob. He left the comfort of his home heading in the general direction of Laban, uh, where Laban lived in Haran with no assurance that he would find his uncle. So I was trying to think how to illustrate this, of the intensity of this journey. This would be like leaving Waycross this afternoon on foot in the general direction without any map and us just telling you, all right, and the easiest one to find would be Key West. That's about 500 miles away. Go south until you get to Key West. Now, the easy part of that is if you can at least get in the peninsula in Florida, you're going to get there eventually, right? Because the water will keep you hemmed in, and when you run out of ground, you're there. But what about this? Once you go west to Jackson, uh, Mississippi, without a map, without GPS, just a general direction and hope you find it. Or west to New Orleans. At least there you can sort of follow the coast. Or maybe north to Charleston, North Carolina. That's about, all these are about 500 miles away. Imagine just walking in those general directions and hoping not only you could find the place, but the family that you were looking for. I believe that Jacob weeps because he is thankful for God providing a safe, his safe travel, 
for providing for him to find his uncle's family and for his journey coming to an end. Now listen to me carefully here. Thankfulness is the response of the humble to the provision of God. Thankfulness is the response of the humble to the provision of God. You see, in pride, when God provides, in pride you say, well, I I deserved this. In fact, in pride, when even when God provides, you go, I should have had it yesterday and should have had more than what I got. In pride, you are dissatisfied with what you have. But when God uses brokenness to bring you to humility, in humility, when God provides, you receive it with grace and with thanksgiving, knowing that it is a good gift of God to you for your blessing. Oh, dear friends, learn the value of humility. Now, secondly, I I think Jacob is learning the cost of sin. And really two things about the cost of sin here. And that is, one, his personal responsibility for his sin and the consequence to others for his sin. And when we look at the, the, recognizing his personal responsibility for sin, um, uh, Jacob, I think, is beginning to understand that, uh, that he is responsible for his actions. I don't know if you had this with your siblings or friends or other family members when you were growing up, but when I was growing up and we were riding bikes, and maybe one of the smaller kids would fall off their bike, sometimes they would stand up and with indignation say, look what you made me do. And they were convinced that something someone had done around them had made them fall off their bike. Now, it's okay for little kids to say that. It gets a bit dysfunctional when adults are blaming others for their own sin. Now, some of you, dear friends, no longer babies, No longer kids riding bikes, but you're still saying in your heart, look what you made me do. Look what others made me do in my life. When it comes to sin, we have a a long list of others we like to blame. So we like to blame our parents, don't we? Well, if my parents had raised me differently, if they'd done things differently, then, then I wouldn't be the person I am today. Or blame our siblings. It's my siblings' fault that I, my brother's fault or my sister's fault that I, I did what I did. Or your friends. I can't help it. My friends pushed me or made me do it. Your coworkers. I can't live for Jesus because everybody I work for uh, d- doesn't love the Lord. Our bo- your boss is mean to you or hard to you or difficult, and so they're the ones who are making you sin. Or your, your, the family that you came from. We're just these kind of people. Or the, the ultimate is society's fault. It's society's fault, the culture's fault for the reason why I struggle in this particular area of sin. One of the common realities of sin is that it blinds you to the truth of your own responsibility. Sin blinds you to your own culpability to your sin. I think it's pretty safe to assume that Jacob had blamed his troubles on his brother Esau without understanding that he personally participated in sin and created such family strife. Now, none of Jacob's family members are without sin. But I want to be very clear. It was not Jacob's father's fault that Jacob lied to him. Jacob's father, Isaac, should not have attempted to give the blessing to Esau. But God would have dealt with that. And it's not, but but even still, it is not Isaac's fault that Jacob chose to lie and even assign God's name to his lying uh, when he lied to his father. 
It's not Jacob's mother's fault that Jacob willfully deceived his father. Now, you may remember his mother encouraged him to do that, but he was a man of 20 plus years. He chose to do that. It wasn't good. It wasn't right. It was certainly sinful for her to to initiate that, but he must take responsibility. His mother encouraged him, but he chose to do it. It's not even his brother Esau's fault that relationships were so broken and hostile that he had to flee his home. I suspect that somewhere over that 500 miles, Jacob probably grumbled a little bit. Man, my brother Esau ruins everything. You got a brother like that? Or a sister like that? Yeah, I could be back at home, but Esau had to get so upset. I could be back at home, but crazy Esau threatened to kill me. But dear friends, it's not Esau's fault that the family uh, relationships of Jacob's family are so messed up. In all of these things, Jacob was a willing participant. The testimony that points, I think, to Jacob's recognition that, that, that this is how, that, uh, of this is how he responds to Laban's deception in verse 28. Now, uh, Laban tricked Jacob. The deceiver was deceived. And it's a terrible story, and how all this went down, it's kind of hard to imagine, but Jacob had worked seven years for the love of his life, and in fact, he had to remind his uncle, it's been seven years, it's time for you to, 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 to be good on your promise. And so his uncle says, sure, it's time, let's have a wedding. They have a wedding ceremony. But when Jacob wakes up at the night after his first night of honeymoon, it's not the woman that he wanted to marry, it's her older sister, Leah. And he complains to his father-in-law, what have you done to me? And his father-in-law's response is, well, that's just our custom, hate it for you, big boy. And he says, tell you what we'll do. Work another, finish out the wedding week, and then you can marry uh, Rachel, and th- but then work another seven years for her. Now, Jacob could have demanded his rights. He could have, at this moment, rejected Leah, which would have been disastrous on a whole host of levels. But Jacob received the news and chose to work another seven years without any recorded complaint. He doesn't protest, and I believe... Because he knows, he doesn't protest because I believe he knows that he treated his family the same way that he is being treated. In other words, I think Jacob recognized, oh, this is the destruction that my own actions caused my family. In grace, I believe God had allowed him to recognize his personal responsibility for his sin, and that's giving him a much more gracious response to the sin of others. But there's a second recognition here, and that I think he's understanding that, that recognizing that sin has consequences for others. One of Satan's greatest lies is to convince you that your sin only affects you. Now, either you've heard this pronounced or you've pronounced it yourself. It only affects me. It doesn't affect you, so don't worry about me. I can do what I want to do. It only affects me is what we say. Now, Scripture is not explicit in this, but I find it interesting that it is only after Esau makes his murderous threats that Rebekah tells Jacob that he must leave home. And, and so it, it seems that Jacob is not even aware that, 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 that he is in trouble until Rebekah says to him, your brother Esau is going to kill you. You've got to leave. So could it be that he was clueless of how angry his actions would cause Esau to become? Now, Scripture doesn't say that, but I think it's a pretty good assumption to make. That Jacob just assumes that he's chasing after his own desires and his want, but he's clueless of how his sin is having a consequence on others. 
And I think he may have been genuinely surprised that Esau is so upset with him after he, he steals the blessing from him. It's possible that Jacob was so self-absorbed that he had given no thought to how his actions were affecting others. Now, this is a pretty common symptom of sin. We become myopic about our own desires and blind to the consequences of others. Jacob would have come to understand the hurt that he had caused his own brother by the way his, his uncle tricked him. And I think this understanding is what allowed him to change his response to Leah. Now, Leah is a tragic person in all of this story. From the very beginning, she knew that Jacob wanted to marry her younger sister. In fact, it says that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. There's no doubt that Leah entered into this marriage knowing that Jacob desired her sister more than her. And it's likely that he had little say in her father. And it's likely that she had little say in her father's plan to trick Jacob and, and marry her to him. Of this moment, uh, James Boyce writes these words. He says, the irony of the marriages could only have been achieved by God. I pointed out that Jacob had been told how Esau would, have, would serve him, but, but that he had first to learn to serve Laban. That is, a, that is a first irony. The second is that in being given first Leah and then Rachel, Jacob was forced to learn that the right of the firstborn must be respected, something he had been unwilling to do in the case of his own brother Esau. Through his deception of his, of, uh, 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 th- through his deception of his, um, of his brother. He was clueless of the consequence that he was causing others. And yet, by being deceived by his uncle, Jacob experiences the cost of his uncle's lies. You know, and though it may, but though Leah may not have been his favorite, the testimony of Scripture is that he was kind to her, and by God's grace, Leah would be the one who would give him the majority of his children. And I believe his kindness toward Leah flowed from his recognition that her life was consequentially impacted by her father's deceptiveness. Friends, listen to me carefully. There's no such thing as sin that only affects an individual. If you are living in sin today, It has a consequence for you, yes, but in concentric circles going from you, it also has sin. It affects your family. It affects your church. It affects your community. Sin has a rippling effect beyond just you. There's one other lesson I think Jacob learns, and that is learning the fruit of deceitfulness. Now, just one point here, and that is deception begets deception, Or you might say, sin begets sin. In Job chapter 4, the Bible says it this way, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So the principle of Scripture is, is when you sow deception in your life, you will reap deception in your life. When you sow destruction in your life, you will reap destruction in your life. 
Arthur Pink on this is, writes quite eloquently about all the ways that, that, that Scripture demonstrates this. He writes that this principle that, that whatever man soweth that shall he also reap, reap is writ large across the pages of Holy Scripture and is strikingly, nay, marvelously illustrated again and again. And then he just chronicles some of the big ones, and I just wanted to point these out. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave orders that every son of the Hebrews should be drowned. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, would find his fate in drowning in the sea. Korah caused a cleft in the congregation of Israel, and so God made a cleft in the earth to swallow him and his followers. Wicked Ahab caused Naboth to be slain, and the dogs came and licked up his blood. Accordingly, we read that Ahab died and was buried in Samaria, and the one who washed the chariot in which he had been slayed, the dogs came and licked his blood. King Asa caused the prophets, the prophet to be placed in the, in the house of the stock. And accordingly, we read later that God punished him by a disease of his feet. Haman prepared gallows for the Jews, and yet Haman would find his fate swinging from the gallows that he had built. Saul of Tarsus stood by and consented to the stoning of Stephen. And later we read that Paul at Listeria, that Jews would stone him as well. The most striking, though, is Jacob. Jacob deceived his own father, lied to him, told him that he was his older brother so that he could get the blessing. And yet Jacob would be deceived by his father-in-law. He would later be deceived by his own brothers, his own, his own sons. Jacob has spent his whole life getting what he wanted by deception. And now he is the recipient of deception. Sin often has a returning effect on the sinner. I say this, dear friends, as a word of warning to you. Sin has consequences. And often, now, sin has an eternal consequence that can only be remedied by the grace of Jesus. But there is a practical present consequence that if you're a deceiver, you will be deceived. If you're a liar, you'll be lied to. That, that, that sin oftentimes begets sin. Deception begets deception. That it comes back to us as part of the judgment of God and the testimony of the destruction of sin. When our boys were little, and I mean real little, we were visiting my grandmother's house. The whole family was. And if you've ever been in one of those family events when you've got little children, you're constantly looking for things to entertain them to keep them out of trouble. My grandmother had an old snapper lawnmower. You've got to be of a certain age to understand what I'm talking about. But a snapper lawnmower, riding lawnmower, was as basic as they get. A handlebar, a seat, and the exposed engine on the back. And to, to have something fun to do or entertaining, we had gotten out my grandmother's old snapper lawnmower. She had a large backyard, and we were taking kids on rides round and around the yard in this old snapper lawnmower. Well, when we were finished, I had pulled the lawnmower back up under the garage, and we were just standing there talking. And Benjamin, who was just a little, I mean, old enough to walk, but not quite old enough to let loose on his own yet, he kept wanting to go and, for whatever reason, touch the engine 
of that snapper lawnmower now had been running for a while, and so you understand it was scalding hot. So every time he would go for the engine, I, of course, would say, no, you can't touch that, and, and physically pull him back. And, and that went on several times. Every time he tried to do it, I would pull him back. But at some point, as it happens, either he saw a moment where I wasn't paying attention or I turned my head or something, whatever way, he got a, a moment where he was not under my direct supervision and he went for what he wanted. And there's a principle here that sometimes when you're told no, you want it all the more, that may have been at play. But he reached out for that engine. Now, I became aware of his bad decision when he began to scream. Amazingly, our bodies are made that the reflex of our bodies is when we touch something scalding hot, we actually re react faster than our brains even recognize the, the, uh, the danger, the, the burning to our skin. But once those uh, pain signals reached his brain, he began to scream passionately with tears because he had burned his hand, reached out, actually touched the, the, the exhaust um, end of the engine and just seared the little tips of his fingers. It was horrible. He screamed and he cried. And as a father, I was brokenhearted that he was experiencing that pain because what do parents do but spend most of our life trying to keep our children from experiencing such pain? Now, listen to this dynamic that happened. I had declared to my son, that is a dangerous thing to touch. Do not touch it. And if he had obeyed my instruction, he would not have experienced pain that day. But like most of us, he had to learn the hard way. And he reached out and he touched it and he experienced all of the horror of the pain it is when you touch something that hot. Now here is the grace that God gives us in moments like that. Those are not good moments. Those are horrible moments of pain and suffering. And the older you get, the greater the consequence of those moments are. But here is grace in those moments. By God's grace, he's never been tempted to touch another hot engine again in his life. Aren't you thankful for that? And you know what else? None of his siblings ever wanted to do that either. Because they saw in him the witness of a horrible event that nobody wanted to relive. There's grace in that knowledge, dear friends. You may be right now with great tears in your eyes and in your heart because the destruction of sin is just wrecking you right now. It may be that God had told you over and over again, don't do this, and yet in arrogance and pride, like a little boy going after a hot engine, you reached out anyway and grabbed hold of it. And as soon as you did, as soon as you did, you are horribly in pain. The destruction is great, and you're terribly remorseful that you ever did it in, in any way. But listen to me, friends. There's grace in that moment that learning the hard way is still learning, praise God. Receive the grace of God's instruction in those moments. Receive the grace of God's maturing in those moments that like Jacob entering into this season of his life arrogant and prideful, clueless of the consequence of his own sin but he'll emerge from these moments more wise, more understanding of righteousness and more closely walking with the Lord. He learned it the hard way but in grace he learned it. There's grace in these moments friends when God uses these moments to draw us to a deeper understanding of truth to more faithful understanding of righteousness and a greater testimony of obedience in our life. Praise God for the lessons we learn, even when we have to learn them the hard way.
For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.